Let us pray. Father, we thank You for sending Christ Jesus. We thank You that You will send Him again at the last day. As Your Word goes forth today, may we look to Him. May we trust in Him alone. May we put our hope in Him. May Your Word do its work in us, transforming us into living sacrifices acceptable and pleasing in Your sight. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus curses this fig tree and overturns tables in the temple, He's not throwing a temper tantrum. That's how some have looked at this passage. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, looked at it this way. He said, why do people talk about Jesus being such a, a holy man? Look at this. He, he loses control. He, he acts out in, in anger. He lashes out in anger. But really, that's not it at all. Jesus is angry, but this is not a temper tantrum. Just like his triumphal entry into the city, these are calculated symbolic actions intended to reveal who Jesus is and what he's up to. There was indeed a long tradition of prophets conveying their message, not only through their words, but through symbolic actions. And Jesus here stands in that tradition. He's acting out his message in these actions. Clearly, the fig tree and the temple somehow fit together. Mark has intertwined these stories with one another, so we can't really read and interpret one story apart from the other. Indeed, these two stories interpret each other. Mark frequently does this. Mark frequently starts one story, he breaks in and tells another story, and then he goes back to finish the story he started with. And that's what you have here. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. He starts off telling us about the fig tree. He breaks in to tell us about the action in the temple. And then he returns to the fig tree. And so clearly these stories are meant to go together. One story is inserted inside another so the two stories can explain each other. The cursing of the fig tree is the only miracle Jesus performs in his earthly ministry that brings death rather than life. It is indeed an acted out parable of judgment. And because the story of the fig tree surrounds the story of his action in the temple, it's obvious that the temple and all that it represents is coming under judgment as well. In fact, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, you will find that the fig tree is commonly used to represent the people of Israel. And of course, there's no doubt that the people of Israel were also represented or symbolized by their temple. Now, don't think of the temple merely as a religious building. Uh, it was that, but it was much more than that. The temple was really the heart of Israel's society. Uh, the temple was the core of Israel's identity. Uh, the, uh, the temple was central not only to Israel's religion, but also to her politics, to her culture, to her economy. Her whole way of life centered around the temple and flowed out of the temple. The temple made Israel Israel. The temple made Israel special because it meant that God had come to dwell in her midst. And so the nation of Israel could serve as a priesthood acting on behalf of all the other nations of the world. The Israelites should have understood all of this. They should have understood that the temple was a conditional privilege. A great privilege, yes, but a conditional privilege. 
And they should have understood that the temple was a shadow of a much greater reality to come when the veil in the temple would be torn and God would come out from behind that veil. He would come out from the Holy of Holies and walk among His people and meet His people face to face. And of course, in a very real sense, that's what's happening here now that Jesus, the Lord incarnate, has entered into Jerusalem. Indeed, what happens when the temple incarnate meets the temple building? What happens when the Lord comes to His temple, when He comes to inspect His temple? You know, it's common to refer to this action of Jesus in the temple as the temple cleansing. And that is part of it, uh, but it's not the whole of it. And in fact, it's not even the main point. He doesn't come merely to cleanse the temple. As if Jesus came to reform the temple. He doesn't come to reform the temple. He comes to destroy the temple. It's too late for the temple to be reformed. The temple must be destroyed. And that's what Jesus is acting out here. On the previous day, the day of His triumphal entry, Jesus came into the temple after He entered into the city. He came into the temple to inspect it. On this day, He comes back into the temple and His actions declare its doom. What's in the background here? Perhaps Leviticus 14 is in the background. Uh, Leviticus 14 talks about uh, what would happen when a house was infected with leprosy. We think of leprosy as a kind of skin disease, which it was, but apparently houses could also get infected with leprosy. We don't know exactly Uh, what that means there in Leviticus, but you can read a description of it in Leviticus 14. If a house was suspected of being infected with leprosy, a priest would come and inspect it. And then he would come back and do a second inspection. And if it was indeed leprosy in the walls of the house, then the priest would announce, this house has to be torn down. Not one stone can be left upon another. And it seems as if Jesus is fulfilling that pattern here. He comes in on the day of His triumphal entry to do a priestly inspection of the temple. He sees that it's unclean. He comes back here to to show that the temple's unclean and to preview its destruction. This is going to culminate in chapter 13 when He says that the temple will fall and indeed not one stone will be left upon another. He uses that language of Leviticus for the leper's house to describe what's going to happen to the temple. Perhaps this story is also an echo of Mark's accounts of exorcisms that Jesus has performed earlier in his gospel. When Mark tells us that Jesus performed exorcisms, Mark says he cast out the demons. Well, here Mark uses that same language. He says Jesus cast out the money changers, as though the money changers were demonic in some way. Mark is suggesting to us that the temple has become a leprous, demon-infested house. The temple is unclean and idolatrous. It is fit to be destroyed. But we need to be very careful how we understand the problem with the temple. The problem with the temple is not necessarily what you might think or what you might be led to expect. The problem with the temple runs much deeper than mere moral corruption. Moral corruption is a big part of it, but it's not the whole of it. 
See, some people look at this passage and they think, oh, well, obviously Jesus was angered by the economic exploitation that was going on in the temple. He didn't like the fact that these economic transactions were taking place in the temple precincts and the Jewish leadership was probably abusing those that, uh, that, that bought and sold there, that had to uh, do their buying there. Uh, Jesus even quotes from Jeremiah saying that they have turned the Lord's house into a den of thieves. And certainly there is evidence of widespread economic corruption on the part of Israel's leadership in the temple. The money changers, the animal sellers, those who are under the oversight of the priesthood were abusing the people, especially the poor. By citing Jeremiah 7, you have made my house into a den of thieves, Jesus is drawing an analogy between the Israelites of his day and the Israelites of Jeremiah's day. And so what did the Israelites in Jeremiah's day do? The people would cry out, the temple, the temple, the temple, as if merely having the temple in their midst was enough to keep them safe. Surely God will never let pagans invade our land. Surely we don't have to worry about being exiled from this land because God is here. We have the temple in our midst. But Jeremiah says... You are a greedy, adulterous people, oppressors of widows and orphans. You are murderers and idolaters. And so in Jeremiah 7, the Lord says, Just as I destroyed the tabernacle at Shiloh, so I will destroy this temple as well. Jesus picks up on the language of Jeremiah to make the same charges. Jesus is accusing the leaders of Israel in his day of the same crimes. And he's predicting the same result. Like a bunch of thieves committing robbery and then retreating into their den or their cave, the Israelite priesthood is full of corruption. But they treat the temple as a kind of safe house, as if it will protect them from judgment against their sins. It's interesting, at the end of the next chapter in Mark 12, when a poor widow casts her last two mites into the temple treasury, Jesus accuses them of greedily devouring widows' houses. And then He walks out of the temple precincts for the last time, leaving the temple desolate. This is Yahweh leaving His house. The Lord has left the building. And that's when he goes on then in the next chapter, Mark 13, to describe its coming destruction. So there's no doubt that economic injustice, economic oppression, especially abuse of the poor and the orphans and the widows, is a big part of the problem with the temple. But there is much more going on here than just addressing economic injustice. There's much more standing behind Jesus' judgment on the temple. The fact is, there was actually nothing wrong with having economic transactions per se go on in the temple precincts. In fact, such transactions were necessary to the temple system. Think about it. Worshippers came to Jerusalem from all over. Uh, At this very moment, they've come from all over into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to offer sacrifice. But of course, they couldn't bring their animals with them over such long distances, and so they had to buy those sacrificial animals when they got there. And indeed, the law of Moses made provision for buying and selling at the centralized sanctuary in Deuteronomy chapter 14. So in itself, that's not 
a problem. Commercialization was necessary to the temple system. Yes, it had become corrupt, but it was part of the system inescapably. Notice, too, that Jesus not only throws out the sellers, but also the buyers. If the only problem is economic injustice, just throw out the sellers. They're the ones creating this injustice, this oppression. But Jesus also throws out the buyers. That tells you that more is at stake than simply cleaning up economic injustice. Verse 16 Uh, does as well. It tells us that Jesus would not let anyone carry any of the sacred vessels through the temple. Those sacred vessels were just as necessary to the sacrificial system as the sacrificial animals were. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is not merely cleansing the temple. He is temporarily shutting the temple down. He is interrupting momentarily the temple's sacrificial system. You can't have sacrifices without buyers and sellers. But that's the point. You can't have sacrifices without the sacred temple vessels. But that's just the point. What has Jesus come to do? Jesus is previewing what is to come. The sacrificial system is going to be shut down for good very soon. Jesus' presence makes the temple and those temple vessels obsolete. So Jesus is previewing the destruction of the temple, the end of the sacrificial system. The temple is going out of business. And Jesus shows that here. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, and He offers His once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, when He offers Himself sacrificially on the altar of the cross, the animal offerings are going to be obsolete. There's not going to be any need for the the blood of bulls and rams any longer once the blood of the Son of God has been shed. Jesus is going to be a high priest for His people, which will make the Levitical priesthood unnecessary and obsolete. He will become our temple. He will be the meeting place of heaven and earth. He will bring heaven and earth together. In Him, God and man will meet and be reconciled. And so the temple itself will be obsolete and unnecessary. All that the temple pointed to will be accomplished and fulfilled in Christ. All that the temple represented in shadow will be found in reality in Christ Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, the temple must go. And so He is not merely cleansing the temple, He is cursing the temple. He's cursing the temple and all it represents, all it has become. Something greater than the temple is here. One greater than the temple has arrived. Now Jesus also quotes Isaiah 56 where the Lord says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. What is this about? Why this Old Testament quotation? Well, it's important to understand Gentiles were always welcome to come and worship at the temple. Sometimes we have this idea that the temple was just for the Jews and Gentiles weren't allowed there. Now, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament law in Leviticus and in Numbers 15 and other places, you see Gentiles were welcome to come and worship at the temple and even offer sacrifice. God intended for the temple to not only be a place for Israel to worship Him, but also to serve as a base for their mission to the nations. It's true, the Gentiles couldn't celebrate Passover. 
You had to be circumcised to celebrate the Passover. But they were invited to participate in all the other aspects of temple worship. God offered Himself to the Gentiles at the temple as well. But the Jews had perverted the temple's missional dimension. The Jews had actually inverted the purpose of the temple. Instead of serving as a way to welcome the nations to draw near to God with her, they used the temple as a way to keep the nations at a distance. Even creating a a special court for the Gentiles to keep them away. To keep them further away than God wanted them. To keep the nations at a distance. So that Israel could look down upon the nations from her privileged perch on Mount Zion and say, we have what no other nation has. We must be better than any other nation. And so instead of serving the other nations and ministering to them as a missional priesthood, Israel boasted against the other nations. And so the temple did not serve its missional purpose, but was instead twisted into a a sign of perverse nationalism. And so Jesus comes here and declares He must destroy the temple so the kingdom can flow out to all nations. The Israelites have been trying to bottle up the kingdom and keep it to themselves. And Jesus says, no. The kingdom must flow out to all nations. The temple must be destroyed because it stands in the way of this nation. Now Jesus here combines these words from the prophet Isaiah and words from the prophet Jeremiah. Words from the prophet Isaiah about the the temple uh, no longer serving as a house of prayer for all nations. The words from Jeremiah about the temple becoming a den of thieves. I think with these words from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus has summarized the temptations that Israel fell into. And we need to understand that those temptations are present for the church as well. These are perennial traps for the people of God. The church is to be a house of prayer for all nations. The church has a global missionary purpose. We are to use our privileges as God's people not to look down on others, not to boast over others, not to pat ourselves on the back and say, we know more than you. We're closer to God than you. We're God's special people. You're not. But instead, we're to see these privileges as an incentive for reaching the nation. We should desire to share our spiritual privileges with the nations because these kinds of privileges don't diminish when they are shared. They multiply when they are shared. That was Isaiah's warning to the people in his day. Jesus uses it in Mark 11. It's Isaiah's warning to us in our day. But you know, the words of Jeremiah also apply to us. Jeremiah's warning also has application to the church. It is possible for us to grow presumptuous and calloused just as the Israelites do. Think about those words from Jeremiah 7 we read this morning. The Israelites said, the temple, the temple, the temple. They put their trust in the temple. They said the temple will protect us. They could have said along with that, we we have the temple, we have circumcision, the sign of the covenant. So we have the temple, God is present with us. We have circumcision, the sign of His covenant with us. We have the Scriptures with all their wisdom and, and their promises. We have the Psalms. We have the priesthood. We have the sacrifices. And so God is ours. God is with us. God is on our side. But the truth is, Jeremiah says, no. 
None of these things, none of these privileges, and they are real privileges, they really do mean something, but none of these privileges will save you. None of these privileges will save Israel or protect Israel if she does not trust and obey God from her heart. In fact, these privileges will just intensify her judgment if she's unfaithful and disobedient. And that's why the Lord says throughout His Scripture things like this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not that God is creating some kind of hierarchy where certain acts of piety are more important than worship or certain acts of obedience are, are more central to the, to, the, to the life of His people than the liturgy. It's not really so much that. It's God's way of warning His people that the liturgy is not enough. God is saying to His people, your worship is worthless unless combined with a life of faith and repentance. Think about it. Israel had the correct liturgy, a liturgy given to her by God Himself in the book of Leviticus. She had correct music and hymnody. God's inspired psalms. She had the right kind of polity, government. She had the right creeds, the Shema, right at the center of it. And yet Israel still fell under God's curse. The same can be true for the people of God in our day. The same can be true for us. We can lapse into thinking, hey, we have all these privileges. God is with us. God is on our side. We can lapse into thinking, you know, surely my sin's not that big a deal. I can pretty much live how I want so long as... I keep coming to church and doing the liturgy and not at the right times in the sermons. We can think, I'm baptized, I'm safe. We've got the correct liturgy. We're safe. We've got the great hymns of the church. We've got the creed and we've got the supper even every week. What could possibly go wrong? Surely we must be saved. No, we need to heed the warning of Jeremiah. We need to understand there are no objective privileges that can substitute for subjective faithfulness. You see that? No objective privileges God gives to us. None of these privileges that come with being a part of His people, His visible community in the world, none of those privileges can substitute for a heart of faithfulness, a life of obedience. Nothing objective guarantees subjective faithfulness. Nothing objective guarantees salvation in itself. We must receive these gifts in faith. We must love and trust God. We must obey God from the heart. The prophet Isaiah warned the people. Jesus addresses this to the Israelites in His day as well. Isaiah said, the Lord said through Isaiah, these people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. They've got the right liturgy and the right songs and the right words, but their hearts aren't in it, and so it is worthless. It is worse than worthless. Think about all the objective privileges God gives to us as His people. There's baptism. We've witnessed several baptisms recently. Baptism is a wonderful gift of grace. You hear me in our baptismal liturgy declare all of those things that God promises to do in baptism. But unless baptism is received in faith and followed by discipleship, unless you're really living like a baptized person, dead to sin and alive to righteousness, 
your baptism's not going to protect you. It's just going to intensify your judgment. It's great to have the psalms and hymns of the church. But if you don't sing them in faith, they're not going to save you. It's great to have the liturgy, a liturgy shaped by Scripture and the tradition of the church. It's great to have beautiful worship. And such forms should indeed shape us. The answer is never to get rid of the forms or to blame the forms. But we do need to remember those liturgical forms by themselves guarantee nothing if our hearts are far from God. It's wonderful to have the Eucharist to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. The Eucharist is truly a gift and means of grace. And Jesus is always present in the Eucharist. He's promised to always show up whenever the bread is broken and the wine is poured. Jesus is there. But what is He there to do? He's there to bless those who partake in faith and He's there to curse those who partake in unbelief and rebellion. Yes, Jesus calls us to receive all of these objective gifts, the the sacraments, the Word. He calls us to this kind of liturgy. But Jesus also calls us to trust Him and obey Him. And Jesus often calls on His people to make sacrifices, to do hard things, to follow Him in obedience, to become more and more like Him, conformed to His image more and more, to share in His love, to share in His hunger and thirst for righteousness, to share in His passion for justice and mercy. This is what Jesus calls us to. And this is what the temple action of Jesus shows us. Really, the fig tree teaches the same lesson. The fig tree is leafy. It looks promising from a distance. Jesus comes hungry, ready to taste its fruit. But Jesus finds it fruitless. It cannot satisfy His hunger. And of course, that fruitless fig tree represents Israel. And so like Adam and Eve, Israel will have her fig leaves stripped away and she will be exposed in her shame and her guilt. See, sometimes God's people can look leafy and green. looks like there's a lot of life. There's a lot of spiritual sounding words that are used. And it looks like a lot of spiritual activity going on. But when you get close and really inspect it, you see, there's not really fruit there. It's all leaf and no fig. You know, kind of like we say, all hat, no cowboy. It's all leaf and no fig. We just had a demonstration of this in the Palm Sunday triumphal entry of Jesus. On Palm Sunday, we looked at this last week, the people had the right liturgy. They had the right liturgical actions, the right liturgical forms. They even used the right psalm. They knew to sing Psalm 118 as Jesus came into the city. They even had leafy branches they lay down before Jesus. But none of it did them any good. It was all show, no substance. All leaf, no fruit. Just like that leafy fig tree that had no fruit on it. The leafy branches they set down before Jesus had no fruit. God will not be fooled. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. God knows His people by their fruits. Those among His people who are fruitless, 
will be cut off and cursed. Don't think, again, just because you show up on Sundays and kind of go through the Bible Belt motions that things are fine between you and God. Don't think that just because you pray occasionally or even read your Bible that you can live however you want and God will be fine with that. If you don't take your faith seriously, God is not going to take it seriously either. Yes, we must worship God. We must come together and worship God. But our worship of God must be accompanied by hearts and lives conformed to God's will. Flowing out of our worship gathering, there must be a renewed way of living from the heart. Yes, we're going to sin. I'm not talking about some kind of sinless perfection. That's why we start our liturgy every week with a confession of sin. That's part of the life of the righteous, is confessing sin, confessing our unrighteousness. But along with confessing our sins, our unrighteousness, we must be striving for righteousness. We must be fighting the good fight, striving to be obedient. This passage is a warning to God's people in all ages. Now, I don't want you to be discouraged uh, by this passage. Perhaps in some ways we need to be discouraged or at least challenged by it. But I want you to see there's a flip side here. Yes, this passage is about judgment. But this passage is not entirely negative. Yes, Jesus comes into the city and He judges the fruitless temple and the fruitless people. Yes, He is pre-enacting the shutdown of the sacrificial system, the destruction of the temple, the great calamity and judgment that will come upon Israel. He comes as a judge. But that judgment is not the end of the story. And indeed, we see, even hints in Mark's Gospel, how the story is going to go on from here. See, throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been acting as if He were the temple in person. Jesus has taken on in Himself and in His ministry the role and functions of the temple. He takes on the role and functions of the temple Himself. So just think about this. Just a few examples of this from Mark's Gospel. You know, in the Old Covenant under the law, if you wanted to be cleansed from leprosy, you had to go down to the temple and meet with a priest and offer sacrifice. But in Mark chapter 1, Jesus cleanses leprosy right on the spot outside of Jerusalem. In the Old Covenant under the law, if you wanted forgiveness for some transgression, you had to go down to the temple and offer the appropriate sacrifice. But in Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus forgiving people's sins on the spot as if He had an authority that equaled and even superseded that of the temple. You don't go to the temple anymore to get your sins forgiven. You go to Jesus and He can declare you forgiven right on the spot. Throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus is impersonating the temple. He's showing He is the true temple. The locus of God's presence and God's work is shifting from the temple to Jesus. But that's not all. Yes, He's tearing the temple down, but He's also building a new temple. And indeed, we saw this last week as the people sang from Psalm 118 when Jesus entered into the city. They sang, the stone the builders rejected. That's talking about Israel's leaders rejecting Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone of what? 
It's got to be the chief cornerstone of the new temple God is building. And what is that temple? We read Ephesians 2 this morning. It tells us it's the temple of the church. The church is a house for God, a temple for God built on Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So what does that mean? It means we are God's house. It means Jesus, the Shekinah glory of God, is here in our midst. Jesus said, even wherever two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them. Wherever two or three gather in Jesus' name, there is your new covenant holy of holies. There's your most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God is found. And so we need to understand, Jesus is present in our midst. Right now. To do all those things the temple promise. He's here. He's right here with us right now. He's here with us. We are His temple and He is at work here to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. He's here to offer us as sacrifices to His Father using the sword of His Word and the fire of His Spirit. He's offering us to His Father as a living sacrifice. Trinity Presbyterian Church understand you are a manifestation of this new temple being built on Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is here with us, meeting here with us right now. The Shekinah glory is here in our midst. Jesus is here with us in all His holiness and all His love and all His grace. And what does He want from you? He wants you to draw near to Him. He wants you to honor Him with your lips and in your heart. He wants you to trust Him and obey Him. He wants you to be assured of His mercy. He wants you to know His death has created a new house of prayer for all nations. A new dwelling place for God. A new temple. You are that temple right now. Right here. He says that to you and He calls on you to go and be that temple in the world all around. Don't be a den of thieves. Be a house of prayer for all nations. Built on the cornerstone of Christ Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us to wed our worship with lives of mercy and generosity and service. That You would help us to drawn near to You, honoring You not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our lives. We ask that You would help us to love and to trust and to obey. We ask that You would clean out the, 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 the houses of our hearts and the house of this church community that we might more fitly be a home and a dwelling place for You. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.